Good morning, my name is Jillian. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 119, 9 through 16. How can young people keep their paths pure? By guarding them according to what you've said. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from any of your commandments. I keep your word close in my heart so that I won't sin against you. You, Lord, are to be blessed. Teach me your statutes. I will declare out loud all the rules you have spoken. I rejoice in the content of your laws as if I were rejoicing over great wealth. I will think about your precepts and examine all your paths. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget what you have said. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Brett. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred things, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be made complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nicole. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 10, 13 through 16. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them. Because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. The Gospel of the Lord. Just remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the joy that we have of belonging to you and to one another. As we listen to your word read and spoken about and talked, I've taught this morning, we pray that by your spirit you would breathe again into our hearts. Breathe your life again into us, Lord. Draw us closer to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone feeling this morning? Very good. Now, if you notice some folks in sports jerseys today, that's because it's our Sunday team's kickoff, and it's a great chance for you to find out about our teams here at New Life Downtown, the many ways for you to, I'm going to say it, get off the sideline and get in the game. There it is. Had to do it. Okay. Uh, I'm so glad to see you. My name's Glenn Packiam. I uh, get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. We've been on a, in a series on Colossians a couple weeks in, and we're pausing on that series today because we have a very, 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 very special guest with us here uh, this morning. Yesterday, in partnership with the Anselm Society, we did a seminar with Sally Lloyd-Jones. Now, some of you will know that name already, and you're already excited, and that's the reason we have children in the house this morning. Any kids in the house? Can I get a woo-woo? Come on, kids. Uh, Sally is, is brilliant. She's funny. She's so insightful. Yesterday's session was just tremendous. And we asked her to stay over this morning and share with us a little bit about her own life and faith and the inspiration behind writing a book that is so well-loved all around the world. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, Sally, yeah, Sally is, yeah, go ahead. Give her an applause for that. 
Sally is a New York Times best-selling children's author. There's a number of other books, including a new one called the critically acclaimed How to Be a Baby by Me, Your Big Sister. Is that correct? And, the, uh, <laughs> and then there's also an award-winning book called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. She's going to do a couple of different readings for us this morning, and my wife Holly and I will interview Sally. But New Life Downtown, would you give a hearty welcome to Sally Lloyd-Jones this morning? Sally, it is so good to have you here. Thank you for such a lovely welcome. <laughs> well, I thought the perfect way to start would be to ask you if you would read a little selection from the Jesus Storybook I Bible. That. I would love that. So we decided on one that we think children will like best, because there's almost a rude word in it. <laughs> I wanted it to be ruder, but we had to change it. Yeah. to. I wanted shut up, but now it's hush up. That's now, just Sal a little tip. <laughs> And, and all the children in the room, you refer to them sometimes oh, as Oh, they're what? my bosses. I'm actually on my best behavior because my bosses are here. Your bosses yeah. are here. You in work fact, for them. would my bosses... If you're my boss, i.e. you're a child, would you stand up so everyone can look at you and clap? If everyone would clap. So, so now when anyone says... How did it go? I'll say, well, I couldn't, you know, it was a standing ovation before I could even oh, start. absolutely, yes, <laughs> well done. Okay, without any more ado, we're gonna have a story and it's called A Giant Staircase to Heaven. And it's based on the story of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. Noah and his family lived in the land and his children had children and those children had more children and then those children had even more, well, you get the picture, until there were lots of people on the earth once more. Now, back then, everyone spoke exactly the same language, so you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything, because you could say hello to anyone, and they knew what you meant. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and we'll be safe forever and ever. Then, they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said. We'll say, look at us up here. And everyone will look up at us and we'll look down on them. And then we'll know we're something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy and everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew higher and higher, until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered, we're the ones. See what we can do with our very own hands? They were quite pleased with themselves. But God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. One morning, they went to work as usual. But everything was different. <laughs> their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? 
And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? <laughs> it wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, shut up, you're boring. <laughs> and you couldn't even say pardon to check if you heard right because no one understood that word either. Oh, it wasn't easy to work together after that, as you can only imagine. People were always quarreling and fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle and becoming grumpier and grumpier until at last they were all too cross to keep on building and just had to stop. After that, people scattered all over the world, which is how we ended up with so many different languages to this day. You see, God knew. However high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase. It was a person. People could never reach up to heaven. So heaven would have to come down to them. And one day it would. Cliffhanger. <laughs> Thank you. So good. So good. Sally, it's one of the reasons why all of us love the Jesus Storybook Bible is how you not only make these stories come alive, but point them towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to that theme here in a moment. But I wonder if you'd begin by just telling us a bit about your story, where you grew up, how you ended up in New York, and all of that. So um, you probably have this idea from my accent that I'm from London or something. But actually, no. I'm, I'm, I was born in Kampala, Uganda, and lived in Kenya. And... Um, then we moved to West Africa. I was raised in a boarding school in the New Forest, which was basically Hogwarts before Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> it had secret passageways and trapdoors, and the best thing about it was, it was the, it was, well, one of the very clever things about it was, it was um, rumored to be Bramhurst Court from Tess, Tess of the D'Urbervilles. But the, the more exciting thing was that it was the house owned by Dame Alice Lyle, who was the last woman beheaded in England. Oh, my. That's where I had my school. <laughs> so that, that now explains everything. Yes. And then I, then I studied at the Sorbonne, and I came to New York. Well, I came to America in 1989 for a year, and here I am still. <laughs> so, and you live in New York City. I live in New York City, and um, I kept my British accent because I thought it was useful. Absolutely. Makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about. So. Absolutely. Oh, we're, we're <laughs> you all Americans impressed. are so nice to English people. <laughs> well, well, English people are either villains or you yes, know, professors. True. I mean, it's, it's so true, isn't the, it? Yeah, no, that's right. yes. Sally, um, tell us what led you to write the Jesus Storybook Bible. Well, I grew up in a Christian home and knew Jesus was my best friend. So when I went to that boarding school, I knew he was with me when I went. And I, I went when I was eight, so I was quite little. And I, so it's very real, he was a very real presence in my life. He was my best friend. But I wasn't really quite so sure about God because I would read stories like David and Goliath and I would think, yeah, well, that's not a very nice story really because I, I would think, I'm not brave like David. I couldn't, I couldn't defeat a giant. So how could God love me because I wasn't doing it right? I wasn't being brave enough. And then I realized later in my life that, of course, I'm not, we're not David in that story. We're those scared soldiers who are too frightened to do anything, shivering on the sidelines. And the only hero in that story isn't me at all. And it points to Jesus. That whole story isn't about, am I strong enough? It's about 
there's coming an amazing hero who's going to rescue us all. And once that started to sink in, I thought, I wish as a little girl I'd understood that so that mm. I wouldn't read these stories of heroes and feel condemned and think, oh, I used to think as well that I had to be as brave as Daniel and not mind being thrown to lions. Mm -hmm. But I knew I would just say, no, I don't know God. I've never heard right. of him. <laughs> you know, that's, that's me. Right. So what's so great is to understand, of course, God knows that. That's why he sent Jesus. Mm. If, we could be, if we could have been the hero, then why would he ever have had to come? Mm. So that was the motivation behind writing it, was to show children that, First of all, the story, the Bible isn't a book of rules that we're supposed to copy so God will love us. It's not a book of heroes that we're supposed to be like so God will love us. It's most of all a story, and it's an incredible rescue story about a brave prince who comes to rescue the one he loves. It's this incredible love story. It's the most amazing tr true story. It's a fairy tale that's come true in real life. So mm. that's what I wanted. First of all, I wanted children to know that because if you know you're loved, everything changes. If you don't know you're loved, no matter what people tell you, do this, do that, you're just, it's all going to be fear. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say for all of you adults out there who haven't read it, that it speaks to adults just as much as it does to children, that yeah. this message that Sally's saying, I think, took me into adulthood to really see that, to see glimpses of Jesus in every story. And just, you really did so well with helping us see the big narrative yeah. of the story. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? We often read, at least as a little girl, and I'm sure it's other people's experience, you read the Bible, and it's like a set of Aesop's fables, and you don't yes. know why you're reading about Noah, and then you don't know why Daniel, and you don't see any connection. Right. And you're sort of like, God's horrible in the Old Testament, but he's lovely in the New <laughs> Testament. It's so distorted. And then, so I wanted to connect all the stories to show that right from the beginning, the plan was always there. And Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, says... The Old Testament is really just one long, glorious record of God's people's failure to ever live up to what they're supposed to be. And, and God had to wait that long so that we would all realize we can't do it. And Jesus came just in time. Mm -hmm. Well, seeing that whole story is, is a tremendous piece. Mm. I wonder, as you were in the process of selecting the stories and all this, I mean, what did you learn through it? We, we know, you know, mm. reading it. We're moved, we're, you know, but I imagine for you, as you're putting these stories together, what was that like, that process? Yeah, well, I started researching the book, and it was more sort of a job. I knew I was going to do a good job, but it was halfway through researching it that something changed, and I think, I can only think it was the Holy Spirit setting my imagination on fire, mm. and I got moved to the point where I just was... It was like a mini revival, really. You can't really be studying all these stories and soaking yourself in scripture without something happening. And so I just had this incredible sense of God's love, how he, over and over again, he keeps forgiving the Israelites. He keeps giving them another chance. He keeps, you know, and I was one particular story I was writing after the plagues and they're in the desert. And, you know, God's rescued them. He's taken them away from Pharaoh. He's opened the sea. He stopped the sun. He's sent a big, huge cloud. He's rained down bread from heaven. He's got water out of the rock. And then his people say, we miss our onions in Egypt. You're trying to kill us. We want to go back to slavery. And I just thought, oh, these Israelites are so stupid. And the minute I said that, then I felt like, oh, and here I am writing this book, feeling overwhelmed by the responsibility and not trusting God at all. And I, so every time I would want to judge how silly the Israelites were, it would come right back at me. <laughs> oh. Which is quite comforting, isn't it? Well, yes. 
I mean, he calls us sheep, which is very helpful, I think. Yeah. Yes. Because of all the animals, he doesn't call us horses. No. no. Eagles. No, those can look after lions, themselves. Sheep yeah. are just completely hopeless. If they fall, <laughs> if they fall over, they can't get back up. And if they see, they could be standing in front of their pen, and they'll feel like they're lost. They won't know where to go. That makes me very happy. It's, it's, very, it's very reassuring. It he knows. He knows. He knows. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Sally, as we're all sitting here, either having had the experience of reading with kids or wanting to do that as parents or grandparents, um, what advice would you have for us? Oh well, I think it comes down to really remembering it's a story. Because as a little girl, I didn't realize that. I thought it was a rule book. I thought it was a he heroes I'm supposed to be like. I think just keep remembering it's this amazing true story and trust it, trust the story. Mm. Because we're saved by story. We're not saved by Jesus coming and giving us some rules. We're saved because a prince from heaven came and saved us. And you know, our, our, story, our whole lives are story shaped, aren't they? Mm. Eugene say, Peterson say more said about that. that. Yeah, yeah. So. Say more about that. You said yesterday about the power of story, and you know, one of the things I love that you said was a story doesn't answer all our questions. A story might help us ask the right mm -hmm. questions, and sometimes as parents or grandparents, we might feel like, uh-oh, if I read the yes. story, it's going to provoke all oh, these questions, yes. and I don't have the answers. And so shall I tell that story on my Please. own self? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I've written this book that's supposed to stop all that. <laughs> so I'm reading the Jesus Storybook Bible in a Sunday school, and I'm very good at keeping getting children out of control, but I'm really not very good at keeping them in control. <laughs> so I was fine reading the story, and at the end of the story, the teacher had wandered away, so I was left having finished the story, and I thought, what am I supposed to do now? So, um, but, but just to tell you, while I was reading the story, there was this little girl who was on her knees, and as I was reading, and it was the story of Daniel, and she was getting more and more eager to hear what was coming next, and full of wonder, and she kept getting closer, almost in my lap, like she wanted to climb into the story. So that was wonderful. And then at the end of the story, I point to Jesus. I say, there's going to be this incredible hero coming who's going to rescue the whole world. And he's going to do whatever it takes, even if it means he has to die. And then, no teacher, all these children. And I hear out of my own mouth coming these terrible words. So children, what does the story of Daniel tell us about how we have to behave? Which is basically saying, how does this story show us how we're doing it wrong? And as I said that, the little girl physically slumped and bowed her head. And I won't ever forget it because it's a picture of what happens to a child when we turn a story into a moral lesson. And what that little girl, she didn't need me to start making her feel like she's supposed to be like Daniel. She needed to worship, and I needed to worship, mm. at the idea of this hero. And yesterday someone asked a really good question because they said, you know, you read a story, and is there an appropriate question you could ask? And I heard at an assembly once someone who did this, and this has guided me. And I think the key is to be on the same level as the child before God, because we're all his children. So I think when it comes to devotional reading, we shouldn't be setting ourselves up as the teacher of the child always. I, I sometimes think maybe this is the moment for us all to be children before God, mm. because what if God wants to speak to you through your child? not the other way around. So in this assembly, this woman had read from the Jesus Story Bible the story of the boy and his lunch. Now the typical question at the end of that story of feeding of the 5,000 is, and I've heard it, uh, so now children, um, what does that tell us about how we should be generous and share our lunch at school? Which is maybe appropriate in other contexts, 
but not, that is not what that story is about. And it totally makes that story tiny and into a tiny point. Because whenever you read a story and then you go, now children, what that story is about is, whatever you put on the other side of is, you have basically decided that's what that story is about. But what if God had something else for that child? And that's, I think, where we can trust the story. So anyway, this lady, she read the story of the 5,000 and at the end she just went, I wonder, and she was on the same level as the children, sitting on the ground, and she said, I wonder what would happen if I gave Jesus everything? That's a very different question. And I think what the difference is, is that she was worshipping and thinking about how her relationship with God would change. And it left it open for children to do the same. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was, that's guided me. Well, it's great because you're engaging their own imagination into it rather than sort of closing all of the, you know, tying everything up with with the little bow and... So, Sally, how can imagination influence our spirituality or our, our own walks with the Lord? Well, I was thinking about that question, and I had a quote I wanted to read. Well, first of all, it's so wonderful that God, he's not a sort of, he's an artist, isn't he? Mm, mm. He creates the world for the joy of it, like a true artist. And so what I was thinking was, You know, the other lovely thing I love is that at the center of the whole world is a dance of joy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever being, loving each other, serving each other in a beautiful dance of joy. And they want, God created us to draw us into that joy, but we decided we would get our own joy and that's how the fool came in. But I think imagination is just using those words of dance. They're all in the Bible. Mm. Dance, joy, that's what we're called to. And that, to me, that sets my heart on fire when I hear mm. those words. Um, but I also think it calls us back to wonder, which is making us more childlike. And, this is the, and children's are, children are experts at wonder because they're new, maybe because they're closer to the ground and they look at things. But um, they also have a right-sized view of themselves because they know they're small and they know they're not able. And they... I think sometimes we think we are able and that we do know everything. Mm. So I think getting back to that childlike thing. But G.K. Chesterton said it best. I'm going to quote him. So he said, Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Mm. Our, wow. Isn't that a great what a quote? Our father is younger, younger than, than we. we. Mm. Mm. Sally, what would you say to us about, as adults, never losing the wonder? How, what can we do to cultivate that, that awe, that worship you spoke mm. about? I, well, for me personally, I find being, you're in a beautiful, I mean, this landscape is yeah. so amazing. I mean, the mountains are preaching to you every day, aren't they? 
I think it's maybe gratitude is helps mm. me. Mm. When I'm being moany and feeling sorry for myself, I get blinders. But today I was watching hummingbirds. I think if you just stop and look at some of these things, it's unbelievable, isn't it? They were actually kind of spiteful. I was <laughs> they were a bit, mean hummingbirds. Yeah, they were very, they were like sort of dive bombing each other. <laughs> so I was like having a lovely moment and then I'm like, oh, that's not nice. No, no, no. That's the fall. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the fall. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay, would you read us one more story? Yes, I would love to do that. Tell us about, uh, this is called Goldfish on Vacation? Yes. Which you might not expect to be hearing at, in a church service. But all will become clear. In the end. In the end. Yes. So, goldfish on vacation. Sometimes it's hard being a goldfish. You dream of growing fat and exploring coral reefs. But instead, here you are in a bowl going round and round in circles. And sometimes it's hard being a child in the summer in the city. All your friends leave and there's no one to play with. You dream of escaping the steamy heat too, but instead, here you are in an apartment going round and round in circles. But sometimes, well, something happens to change all that. In a small apartment, in a tall round building by a park next to a river in the middle of the big city, there lived three children, H, little O, and baby M. In a small bowl next to a lamp in the middle of a table beside the curtains, in the small apartment, there lived three goldfish, Barracuda, Patch, and Fizz. An old fountain stood at the end of their street. It was broken and covered in ivy. No one used it anymore, except to throw garbage in. But the children thought it was beautiful. On top of the fountain, there perched, as if he'd just landed or was about to fly off, a magnificent stone eagle with outstretched arms. Grandpa said the same people who built the famous Grand Central Station built the fountain, and in the olden days before cars, horses drank from it. But when people got cars, they didn't need horses or the fountain, and they stopped taking care of it. The children felt sad for the fountain and the eagle. Then, one early summer day, a sign appeared. Hamilton Fountain Water Garden. Coming in two weeks, calling all goldfish looking for a summer home. The children rushed home to tell their fish, you're going on vacation. Barracuda stared with big fish eye, fish eyes. Fish blew big fish bubbles. And Patch sank slowly down to the bottom of the bowl. See, H said, they can't wait. <laughs> Grandpa rushed into the kitchen and on the big calendar on the wall next to June 28th, he wrote, goldfish on vacation. But the children didn't need a calendar to remember. They were already counting down the days. Every morning they rushed to the window and so did Grandpa. And every morning they watched a man at the fountain. One morning he was cleaning the next morning he was scrubbing and scraping. Another morning he pulled ivy off the eagle and filled the fountain with clear cold water. He put in tall reeds and then lily pads. And then, one morning, the children couldn't see him. They couldn't see him because, because of all the children. The children and children and children crowding around him, all of them waiting to drop off their little fish children. It's today, cheered the children, and it was. 
In no time, they were making their way slowly down the big staircase and out of the front door. Grandpa leading the way, then little O with her net, then baby M with the fish food, then H with the bowl and barracuda and patch and fists in a wonderful goldfish parade. Out on the street, everywhere they looked, there were goldfish parents just like them, with their goldfish. When at last it was their turn at the fountain, H and baby M and little O told their fish, goodbye and see you soon and don't be homesick. Then the man helped them lower the bowl underwater. At first, the fish hung back in the bowl until, in a flash of light, they darted and were gone. The water shone in the shadow of the eagle's wings and the children saw, glistening in the sunlight, swimming in the clear, cool pool, like sudden glimpses of hidden treasure, fish after golden fish. All through the hot summer, H, little O and baby M stopped by to say hello to their goldfish and so did the other goldfish parents. Soon all the children looked forward to meeting each other at the fountain. Every day they played together and every day grandpa came and put his chair down and chatted to the children who sat and listened. And he told them stories of those hot August days long ago when he was a boy and how all the children who couldn't leave the city would jump and splash in the fountain. And then the children wished that they were those children jumping in. Before they knew it, it was the end of the summer. The man told the goldfish parents that the only way to catch their fish was to go in the fountain, to wade into the water with their nets. And so all the children took off their sandals and jumped and splashed and laughed in the fountain. And then Grandpa took off his sandals too and rolled up his trousers and paddled. And he said it was like those days long ago when he was a boy. And the children could hardly even recognize their goldfish. <laughs> they look like completely different fish. <laughs> Are they really our fish? Asked little O as they headed home. Oh, yes, I'm absolutely certain they're our fish, said Grandpa, who really wasn't at all certain they were. <laughs> they look so fat and happy, said H. Of course, said Grandpa. That's what a vacation will do for you. Anyway, who says you have to leave the city to have a vacation? And the children laughed because they knew it was true. And so the goldfish, who may have been barracuda and patch and fish, or some other goldfish altogether, went back to being fish in a bowl. And the children went back to being children in school. Until the next summer, when Hamilton Fountain would once again be filled with lily pads and reeds and shining water and golden fish, and children. So do you know the best thing about that story? Actually, there are two best things. So the first best thing is it's completely true. It's a completely true made-up story. <laughs> I made up the bit about the children because they're my nieces and nephews and they live in England, but I pretended they lived in New York. But everything else is true. There's a real fountain. It's at the end of my street. There's a real man called Brad. So that's an amazing thing, isn't it? And the second best thing about this story is Brad saw the broken fountain. He saw it was all not being used the way it was meant to be. He saw it was all filled with garbage. But he could see a beauty that no one else could see. And so he decided he was going to restore the fountain. He was going to restore this broken, beautiful eagle. And so he mended what was broken. He cleaned out what was filled with garbage, and he basically rescued the fountain. 
so it could be as beautiful as it was always meant to be. And I know someone else like that, who restores broken things, who sees beauty where no one else can see it, who can clean out even the most dirty garbage. And I think we all know his name. And that's why we're all here today, because he's the rescuer of our lives. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sally. As the worship team comes this morning, uh, Sally, we're so grateful for the way you use your gift of storytelling to point us over and over again back to Jesus. And I know there are, uh, maybe in some ways, all of us here, uh, that the Holy Spirit is prompting something in you today to kind of uh, call you back to wonder, call you back to worship, call you back to grateful praise. We're coming this morning to the moment in our service each week where we come to the table and we come to this table empty-handed. We don't come uh, to the Lord, to the Lord's table as if it's a potluck with something to offer him. We come with empty hands knowing that Christ has offered us his own life, his own body and his own blood. And so this morning, wherever you are in your life and in your journey, perhaps there was something that was said that that really kind of sticks with you today. And you say, I, maybe I am reminded that I need a rescuer, that I don't need another self-help plan, I don't need another sort of three things to go and be a better Christian. I need a rescuer, I need a deliverer, I need someone who will come and win the great victory on my behalf. And maybe there are others of you that are saying, well, I need someone who would be like Brad the fountain cleaner, who would come and clean up the garbage and the mess and take things that are, that are broken, maybe just from life, maybe from our own mistakes and messes. We gather as the church because we believe in the power of the good news. Amen? We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe in the God who takes broken things and puts them together and makes them beautiful. We believe in the God who cleans up messes and brings joy where there once was sorrow, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's what Isaiah said. And I want, I, I want you to know that that can be your story this morning. That can be true for you today. Whether it's the first time you've heard it or the 10,000th time you've heard it. Let's come with that freshness of a child, seeing the gospel as if for the first time, hearing the good news as if for the very first time. So would you bow your heads with me this morning?